Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakre, European Rate Specialist, and I'm joined today by our Global Market Specialists, John Briggs and Giles Gale. So I'm going to start with Europe this week because um, I would say it's certainly what has well, we're only one day in actually in the UK to the week, <laughs> well, one and a half days now, but it really has been what's been driving global bond markets, I would say, over the past few days, because we've had this notable shift in um, ECB speakers, starting with Lane actually last week, um, but then backed up by Villoir, and then I guess more typical hawkish speakers, like not um, Holtzman, but we've had a clear shift in a hawkish direction, um, signaling that the pace of QE will for Q4 will be reassess at next week's meeting so um i guess giles just would like to hear from you about what you kind of make of this what you think this actually implies for for next week's meeting and and the pace of qe beyond that yeah well i think it's fairly clear it's always interesting when you're only hearing from one side of the debate and um you know in this case i think that it's it's pretty clear that the hawks want to get their case out there and um you know, I, I think they've got a pretty strong case to be honest with you i, I think it's you know a pretty strong base case now that they will change their change their the guidance about the way that they're conducting the PEP. Uh, remember that back in March, they said that they were going to increase the PEP um, uh, significant, to, to a significantly higher uh, monthly pace than they had been conducting in the, the first part of the year. And they subsequently did that, um, you know, increasing the net purchases under PEP from about 60 to about 80, um, you know, which means total net purchases once you include the other stuff that they're buying in the and the traditional QE program of about 100 billion and you know that grosses up to something like 150 ish um, in in gross in gross terms so i think now given that they you know, i mean clearly uh, i know, should be very pleased with what they you know what they've achieved in terms of preserving um, or you know, even increasing the sort of uh, the, 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 these easy financing conditions that they wanted to, to, to underpin, I suppose, with that policy. Um, you know, pretty much every indicator that you could look at um, is at an easier setting than it was. Um, you know, we think that the, the baseline that they're really referring to is December last year, compared to then almost everything is, is easier. And we've been tracking very... No, very, very strong growth. Um, you know, so all those downside risks that you know, maybe muddied the picture back in March, you know, those have not gone away, but they certainly you know, haven't materialized. And I think that the, the COVID risks are significantly less pronounced than they were back then. So and I think it does make sense for them to take a little bit of a step back. Um, so we are now expecting them to do so. Uh, they won't tell us exactly how much. Um, a bit of a debate uh, just amongst us on the team whether you know, they might pair it back to something like sort of you know, maybe from 80 billion in PEP on a net basis to 70 or 60. You know, it's going to be something around there, we think. Um, you know, not dramatic, but you know, enough over time to be noticed. And I think that there's a no, this this has a, a psychological importance for the markets as well because you know 
I guess, particularly over the summer, there was this feeling that they were basically just going to fine tune their purchase pace to hit the full, uh, to, to, to fill their envelope. You know, they've got this envelope of 1.85 trillion uh, total purchases that they're supposedly allowed to make under PEP. And they were, you know, essentially setting a pace to, to fill that by by next March and so now perhaps um, that they they might not feel that that's such uh, an important thing to do. What about beyond next March you know at the last meeting um, that was the July <clears throat> meeting that just came after the um, conclusion of the strategic review so we got the updated forward guidance but that was um, you know, all about rates, really. There wasn't much on QE. Um, and we've always had our base case assumption that that QE would be some form of QE, whether that be PAP or called something else, would be extended beyond March 22. Um, does this change your base case around that at all? Or is this just really a step down from, um, you know, what were probably really emergency settings in this significantly higher pace? Um, and we shouldn't kind of overinterpret this as a the beginning of a, a taper or anything like that no i think that's exactly it i mean listen it is a taper um but you know it's 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 a very slight one and it's only really sort of taking you know, it's they stepped up and now they're you know, perhaps stepping back a little bit so you know while it is a it is a taper and in, in some sense i mean and it should be considered such you know it's not part of a uh, an ongoing program they're not going to tell us you know this is the course that we're now going to set for 2022 this is how we're going to get back to net zero or anything like that so it's not a taper in that sense um, no. for next year it doesn't really change anything that we thought about what's going to happen after March um, no. we we never thought that March was just going to be when PEP was switched off um, and we just Know, go from a very very high base of total asset purchases down to you know essentially you know, whatever the 20 billion um that you know, the kind of underlying baseline that we that we had before uh you know, before pep began um and you know, has been continuing all along and is very rarely talked about you know it was never going to just step down like that i think that they probably uh, end up extending the uh, the pep um and then you know if there's an unused portion from the current envelope then that would just be rolled forwards and you know, used flexibly over whatever period that that extension happens to be you know whether it's six months or nine months and you know that's more or less what we what we have in mind so you know, next year will be about tapering they'll have a lot more to tell us about you know about the how they will approach that you know it's probably going to be sort of state-based rather than um you know here is kind of you know, the the taper schedule but by state-based what i mean is you know according to economic conditions and and, and, and so on um, but you know, there will be more to for them to tell us about that we just probably won't hear what that is i don't think until until most likely december possibly later from a market's perspective then is this the ecb you know sort of telling us that they will now be happy or not push back against um, such a low level of, re so, sorry, 
they would be happy with a higher level of rates. So they won't push push back against kind of rate rises so heavily. Um, and I guess that's a kind of two-pronged question, both on core rates, but also what they might think about the level of, of sovereign spreads as well. I think it is. Um, you know, it's, I mean, it's not, it's not a, again, you know, this isn't something that we should be overstating, but I think clearly it is. Uh, you know, they, they don't need to push back against the markets you know, or some underlying tendency in the market to, to look for slightly higher rates as they did back in March. And now I'm just going to read this because you know, we were talking about it a little bit um, just amongst us beforehand as being a bit of a confusing comment from, from Lane in his interview, where he says that we've seen this year significant shifts in investor demand and such investor demand shocks are relevant in thinking about the appropriate calibration of net asset purchases. Now, so you know what what does he mean there? Um, you know, it's it's a little bit sort of ambiguous, I suppose. But you know, my my reading of that was essentially that there are times that they, they they've viewed their you know, as being times when investors just don't get it, and you have to fill if you know you 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 have to push push back, and you know if you, you want to call that some kind of no, no volatility control or whatever you want, then then that's then that maybe you know, is essentially you know, that gets at the essence of what they were doing. I think that they need to you know, need to get away from that a little bit, and you know, now there is less need uh, to to push back against uh, you know, the I guess the tendency towards you know, pricing. <laughs> rates according to fundamentals a little bit more so yeah i think you know slightly higher rates that that would be perfectly okay for them and you know wider spreads yeah i'm less sure to be honest with you i mean we're relatively tight spread so i'm sure that you know, a little bit wider wouldn't matter that much markets might you know might want to test in that direction just in the short term uh, because you know, there's this idea that you know Sovereign spreads are so heavily reliant on uh, on on PEP, but overall, there you know we're neither all that worried about it, um, and you know I think that the spread component is probably something where the euro system, well, where the ECB is probably a little bit more sensitive. Uh, you know, we've talked before about the role of. Um, of uh, financial stability having kind of been elevated in the um, in, in the ECB strategy review and you know, financial stability over the last sort of ten years or so has really been mostly about um, uh, about sovereign spreads. Um, you know, that's sort of the start of the chain, and so that's something they're going to have to continue to look at very carefully. All right, thank you, Jazz. Well, we will be catching up again. Um, after the ECB next week. So um, we'll kind of have the benefit of knowing what they actually did and we'll be dissecting that in next week's podcast. Um, over to you then, John, in the US, because it's all about Fed watching there, really. Um, before we get on to, I guess, this week and looking forward to the, the data, let's just quickly catch up on Jackson Hole last week. So when we recorded the podcast last week, it came out just after Jackson Hole. So we haven't had the chance to kind of um, debrief listeners on, on what we learned from Jackson Hole and, and how, if at all, that's kind of changed our uh, base case for the, for the Fed taper path. 
Um, no, it didn't really change anything. I mean, I think there was some expectation with a lot of the Fed presidents speaking hawkishly about taper or prepping taper uh, that Powell might signal something. But we had, and many others did really think that that he wasn't going to signal anything because then he would lose his optionality when it came to this coming payroll report and, you know, over setting up expectations. I mean, if he had said, yeah, we're on path to taper and then the employment report came out very low, then, you know, it kind of looks a little bit foolish or might have to backtrack. So, um, you know, not a ton out of Powell. There's a little bit of discussion around the idea that he said that, you know, clear progress towards their goals in the employment side would continue to be, you know, something like the three-month average, which is around 830,000. So there's a little bit of expectation in the market that maybe you need to see that kind of growth um, in payrolls in order to meet the employment side of the mandate. And, you know, as a reminder, he also, though, did say that as Clarita signaled a few weeks ago, which we've discussed in this podcast, that they have met their inflation side of the mandate. They feel like that that has filled, fulfilled under flexible average inflation targeting. So you really just need the employment side to keep up in order to progress towards reducing monetary accommodation. You know, so what that number is, you know, I think this podcast is probably going to be published right around the time of the data release. So you know, as usual, I get the great timing on things. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll see. I will add one more thing, though, that Clarida had a CNBC interview, which he did say that, you know, he doesn't think we need 800 plus, just need um, job growth to be robust. So I think that that was his way of walking that back, well, maybe a little bit and saying that, you know, it's a little bit more nuanced um, when it comes to what's needed to meet that mandate. So maybe not 800 plus, but still robust. What What is that kind of a number? You know, we're looking for, um, as you say, this is probably going to be published right after <laughs> the, the payrolls number. So maybe we'll edit this bit out if it's really <laughs> off. But our base case is for 525,000 um, jobs on, on NFP. So is that just sufficient to keep the Fed on our kind of base case timeline, which is an announcement or signaling in September announcement in, in um, November. Um, and if that's the case, then what kind of a number might you be looking for to shift that timeline in either direction? Yeah, so I have to say, Kevin Cummins, the economics group here in the US has had almost like nailed the number the last two or three months. So even if it is a mess, they, they get a break every now and then. Um, so yeah, so we have 525. I think that's fine. That's robust enough to kind of keep things on track. But you and, and to be on, you know, again, when, when we think they might do some sort of signaling in September, it, they're going to keep a lot of optionality. You know, as long as continued progress ensues towards our goals, then we expect to taper in the next several meetings or, you know, or in the next, or now, you know, something along those lines. The exact wording may not be as important as just kind of the spirit of it. But anything that's probably kind of, and again, this is super subjective, but 400 or lower or, um, or, or on. And then if you, if you do get something more that's kind of robust, but not what we've seen in the five, 600, that next payroll report, the September report reported in um, October, again, it's going to be another waypoint that we're going to look at. So if you have kind of the trajectory going from 800 to 500 to 300, that may worry some of them. If it's going 800, 500, then back to 800, then you're fine. So, you know, the next few payroll reports really do have a heightened, um, sense of importance, but also, you know, even just around the headline number, you know, what's also going on with participation rate or people coming back to workforce now that schools are open. Again, that's really next report, not this one. Um, you know, this report, you could, the Hawks could say, well, listen, that was the heart of Delta it was August. And that's when this report survey week was. So next one should be better. Again, all that debate is probably going to keep them, even if they do 
signal for a taper in September that they're going to keep a lot of optionality open. And I think the kind of market's there though, too. So, oh, I will say though, just I, I'm, I'm going to preempt, I think what your question is going to be. If you get a very strong number, you know, maybe like a million plus, then you're going to have a discussion and debate about whether that maybe moves up the timeline. Because again, August had a lot of, has a lot of reasons to be a little bit lower or a slowdown in pace that you could find some excuses for in the fight face of COVID. If you, it's, you know, it's a million plus, you know, the Hawks could really get going and maybe there would be some pressure to have a, you know, September announcement for October um, for an October start. I will say that the important way marker for the coming week is going to be Williams has a speech next week. So how does he feel? What is his message? Because I'm pretty sure that if he discusses it, it's going to have Powell's stamp of approval. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> so my final question then, um, I guess just sticking with kind of payrolls and, and the data, we've obviously had ADP today, which was weaker than expected. Uh, will the Fed be paying much attention to that? I don't, I don't want to ask you too much about what that really implies for NFPs, because obviously this is going to come out later. And we know that that relationship isn't particularly significant anyway. But will the Fed be paying much attention to that weaker number? Or is it really all about the NFPs? No, I mean, ADTP doesn't have the greatest track record. Um, you know, it tends to overshoot, undershoot by a fair amount, you know, a couple hundred thousand, especially in this post-COVID period. So I don't, I think that if you have a decent payroll number, this won't really impact that much. Um, I, you know, other things, I think like if we start, we've seen some pullbacks here. I mean, ISM data has been super high, so I don't really, I mean, you should expect some pullback. Maybe it's been a little deeper on the service side. I think some of like, you know, the consumer confidence numbers that have come down a lot more than we've thought, um, you know, how those kind of numbers uh, work out over the next several prints, um, you know, your service PMI stuff, I do think it has a little bit more important than manufacturing side, which has a lot of supply chain and orders issues and things like that. So, you know, I think kind of that service consumer side numbers, retail sales, they're going to also have importance when it comes to, you know, even as the job market, which sometimes can lag some of that stuff, some of the more um, forward looking indicators, uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks, I think are things that we should be latching out for. So still lots to look out for. All right. Thank you both um, for joining me. That was, I think, been an interesting discussion this week. Lots to watch. Uh, and we'll catch up next week. Like I say, when we'll have the benefit of knowing what NFPs were and the benefit of knowing what the ECB did. Um, and just a reminder um, to all of our listeners that um, if you liked today's episode, then please hit the like button to show your appreciation and click subscribe so you can listen to our latest episodes as soon as they're available. And just a reminder, I did have one question that I was going to ask this week, but I think we've actually run out of time really. So I'm saving it for next week. But if there are any other questions that you would like to pitch to our Bondcasters, then please send an email to bondcast.netwest.com. Thanks all.